Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 4, fourth chapter. As we go through Philippians, I continue to be amazed at how the themes that we're studying here overlaps our study that we have in the book of Matthew on Sunday mornings. And I, I don't suppose that I should be too surprised by that because the apostles' teachings are mostly an expansion of those things that they heard taught by Jesus. We don't have anything in the scriptures that tell us that Paul actually or personally met Jesus before he had that Damascus Road experience. But we do know that Paul was given special revelation by the Holy Spirit to write these things that he wrote in his letters. And and, uh, he did spend some time also learning from the uh, other apostles. What he learned was Jesus' teaching, so that whenever there was something that he was going to say that wasn't addressed by Jesus... You'll find him mentioning that and and telling us that uh, he had received something by direct revelation, something that Jesus hadn't actually taught on. That's the case that we find in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, when Paul makes a statement there and he's dealing with issues of marriage. And he makes a little statement there. He says, the rest speak I, not the Lord. And he doesn't intend for us to think that He's about to give us some kind of personal doctrine that he's just made up. But rather, the Holy Spirit has given him something that uh, Jesus didn't address, didn't touch on. And so he tells them that this was direct revelation from the Spirit. So this means then that when he doesn't say something like that, that, of course, most of the other things that he teaches had been taught previously by Christ. And so what he was doing is expanding and explaining Christ's teachings. So much of what we learn in the book of Philippians has already been spoken by Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we would come across common themes, uh, speaking you know, on the very same things that Christ taught in areas like on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is one of more, those more obvious times where our themes kind of get parallel. And on Sunday morning, the 29th, I'm going to reemphasize some of the things that I want to talk about tonight. Uh, Some of the times the the concurrent themes are a little more subtle, and sometimes they're more overt and obvious. And this is one of those times when the theme is obvious. And I say that because uh, after I'm through preaching the sermon tonight, and you come on the 29th and hear what I have to say then, you'll say, well, he's running out of material or something because he's duplicating the sermons. Well, no, I'm not running out of material. It's just that our themes run closely together. And uh, we're on the subject of giving tonight, and that comes up in our study, the Sermon on the Mount, as well. Now, this is not really a favorite topic of a lot of Christians. And when they find out that the preacher is going to preach about uh, giving, some of them will head for the hills and that's the service they're going to make sure that they miss they want to be in another place whenever the preacher's talking about giving and so if that's your attitude you're not going to enjoy the sermon tonight and uh, you won't enjoy it on the 29th so you might want to stay away from that one too but what we have here in scripture that we're talking about tonight is just a wonderful example of selflessness the philippian church had learned a very important lesson which is that giving feels good. Giving feels good. And Paul commends them for uh, their spirit in giving in the closing remarks of this letter. So let's stand, if you would, please, as we look at God's word. Philippians chapter 4, we'll start reading at verse number 14. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now that's 
talking about uh, bringing him an offering. Now, ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, because I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us here tonight. Lord, as we look into your word, uh, I just pray that you'd open up our hearts to what you'd have us to know. And may we learn some very valuable lessons here, even as the Philippians learned about their giving. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How do you tell when a person has really got it, when they claim that they're a Christian? How do you really know if a person is what they profess to be? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made eight statements beginning with the word blessed. Eight statements in chapter 5. It started with the word blessed. And we call those the Beatitudes, and what they are are defining characteristics of God's people. And you can go down that list of Beatitudes, and you can examine your own life and compare it to those things that Jesus said. And if you have those particular qualities that he speaks of there, then you have real, a real basis for assurance in your, in your, uh, of your salvation. And those things that are in the Sermon on the Mount, that first part, are really not what causes you to be a Christian. And we never really want to make that mistake, but they're actually products of a heart that has been changed by Christ. From the Beatitudes, Jesus went on to speak of pharisaical shortcomings and how that they had tried to gain a type of righteousness that was a self-righteousness, and it's really not the kind of righteousness that God requires in order for a person to be a Christian. And the last of his fall short examples that Jesus gave in chapter 5 concerned the command, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's really the basis for giving. Thou shalt love thy neighbor comprehends this area of giving. It comprehends actually the whole second division of the law. Um, loving your neighbor means that you will treat him right and that you will treat him as well as you do yourself. And the reason that this is comprehends, it comprehends also our giving, is that whenever we see someone that's in need, we're not to ignore that need any more than we would ignore our basic needs of food, shelter, and clothing, but rather that we would meet that person's need, and in doing so, we would also receive a benefit from it. Now, so how do you tell, then, if somebody has really got this when we talk about our salvation? Well, number one tonight is the proof of their profession. I want to talk to you a little bit about the proof of the, uh, the Philippians' profession. Did they really get what it means to be a Christian? Was there something that was very uncommon about these people for that particular time and place? Now, I'm going to leave the answer to that question uh, Till Sunday morning, the 29th, and I'll talk more about the prevailing attitudes at the time. But I do want you to know this, that Paul's commendation for the giving of these people was a statement of his joy that they really did get what he was trying to teach. Now, if you remember in an earlier message, I talked about how Paul struggled with how that he would commend 
the Philippians for their giving because he was faced with the problem that if he uh, makes them think that he's totally dependent upon their gifts and that he simply cannot make it without them, then he would be giving them the wrong picture because he really wasn't dependent upon them. He wasn't dependent on them for his peace of mind and contentment, but rather all of his dependence was upon God. And so his full sufficiency was in the Lord. And if nobody ever gave him a dime, he knew that somehow God was going to meet his need. But the fact is, these people did give, and they gave generously. And it was proof that they had really learned about loving their neighbor. In verse number 15, we learned that there were none of the other churches that Paul ministered to that were as forward as the Philippian church was with giving. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly why that's true, and he doesn't, certainly doesn't rag on them because they, they didn't give like the Philippian church did. But he just says to these people, he says, you are the very best at this. I mean, you, you worked hard at that, and, and you've really gotten the picture that giving flows from a heart of true Christian character. Now, I want to talk with you a few minutes about this character that comes in giving and how that's a proof of our profession in Christ. So what do we see about these people that showed that they really did get this and they understood about giving what it was for? Well, first of all, we see that it was a demonstration of love. Who did the Philippians love? And I can say that they certainly loved Paul. And we discussed in the introduction of the book how there was a closeness of Paul with this church, unlike any of the other churches that he ministered to. And no doubt he had that closeness to them, and he loved this church very dearly because they were so generous to him. They proved their love because they sent Epaphroditus to check up on him. When they didn't know where he was, they went looking for him. They tried to find out how can we meet the needs that Paul would have. And yet, their love for Paul was not the main reason for their giving. Giving for the sake of Paul was not their highest joy, because if they learn anything at all from him, they learn this, that the reason that we give is not because of all these other things. We, lo- we give simply because we love Christ. We give because we love God. And how do you know when a person has really got it? It's because they give because they love God. Now, maybe we miss that sometimes because there are people who will skip the services when they know the preacher is about to preach on giving, and they think that, well, perhaps the preacher has got up there to preach about it because the church has a certain need, and so now it's time to talk about giving. Otherwise, he wouldn't say anything about that. And they have this idea that they're really not too concerned about paying the mortgage for the church and paying the electric bill and keeping up with the utilities. Uh, They've got a higher aspiration than that, and so they just really don't want to give to the church. And sometimes they may think things like, well, the pastor's getting too much, and so uh, we ought not, uh, I just think I'll keep my money and use it for something else rather than supporting the church. Well, if those are the things that you think about, then you have the wrong motive behind your giving. Giving is not about love for me, and it's not about essentially whether we keep a church plant, a physical church plant operating. The motive for our giving is love to God. That's why we bring our money. We do it because we love God. And if you've fallen head over heels in love with Jesus, you're not going to have any problem, and it's not going to be a burden to fill out a check. You don't have to force your right hand to pick up the pen and fill in that check and fill in the dollar amount because when you really love Jesus and you really want to give because you love God, you're willing and anxious to take that check or take your wallet or whatever you're going to do, and you can't wait till that offering plate comes by because you want to give to the Lord. Now, I think there are some Christians who 
when they get the paycheck, if they think about it at all, and some of them don't, is they think, well, you mean I have to give? Rats, I have to give. I mean, what could I do with this money? I could spend it all on myself. I mean, I would be so much happier if nobody actually expected me to give anything. Well, your willingness to give to the Lord says a whole lot about your love, and it tells the real story about whether you love Jesus. Now, when we get into the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, that'll give you some idea about giving and how that is a proof of being a part of Christ's kingdom. And so do you really do you say that you love Jesus, but your giving says otherwise? And are there people who are right when they say that Christians are hypocrites? You see, when we give, we prove that we really do love God. Then what else, what, what else does their giving show about the Philippian church? Well, it's also a demonstration of dependence. Paul made a great statement about this church in his second letter to the Corinthians. And he said, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, their willing of themselves. Now, what is the overall theme of this last part of Philippians 4? Well, it's in verse number 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. That is a statement about dependence. Their gifts did not govern his dependence. His freedom didn't govern, govern his, his contentment. His health didn't govern his contentment. He was content because he had learned to depend on God. And in verse number 12, he says, I've learned to be content when I don't have stuff and when I do have stuff because it's really not stuff that dominates my life. And if stuff doesn't dominate you, then you're really not going to have too much trouble giving things away. If material things are not your goal, then giving it away is not going to bother you. Giving shows where your dependence is. Now, the fact that they were willing to give to Paul, showed that they were already learning that lesson. He was struggling to try to teach them how's he going to approach them and show them the real attitude about giving and how's he going to hurt their, not hurt their feelings about the way that they gave their gifts. And apparently these were people that had already reached some type of understanding of this. And so they proved this because they're, what he says about them in, in the book of Second Corinthians is that their deep poverty, even in their deep poverty, they gave more than they were actually able to give. Now, how do you do that? How can you give more than you can actually are able to give? Well, that's an impossible thing unless you depend upon God. Now, a good case in point is that widow who gave to Elijah. She was down to the very last that she had. She was down to the end. And when Elijah came across her, he found her gathering some sticks. And what she was going to do was build a fire, and she was going to make a little cake for her and her son, and that would be the last meal that they would have. As far as she knew, that that was the end of the food, and so she was going to die. So Elijah came along, and, and he said, make me a little cake first. And so here's this woman. She, she's down to her last meal, and she's going to make it for her and her son. The man of God comes along and says, well, before you do that, make me a little cake first. And she said, well, how can I do that? I mean, I have just enough meal in the barrel and just enough oil in my cruise to, to, build, to make this meal for me and my son. And Elijah said, well, I want you to do that anyway, because the Lord God of Israel has commanded this to be done. 
And so he told her, you need to trust God. And what God is going to do, he's going to keep meal in your barrel and he'll keep oil in your cruise. Now, can you imagine how hard that must have been for her? I mean, she has nothing. She's about to die. She's making the last meal. What was she thinking about? Or did she think, well, well, I'll do this because after all, I have a retirement account that I can fall back on. Or I'll do this because I do have a little bit in the savings account and I've got some family that will take care of me. No, she didn't have any of that. She had nobody to take care of her. Everybody that was around her was in the same shape that she was. I mean, this is the story about how it hadn't rained for three and a half years. And so the whole country there is suffering from a famine. All the crops have failed and everybody's in the same boat. And yet, this woman believed the Lord. And what she did was she made that little cake for Elijah. And she had nothing at all to fall back on. That is nothing at all but God. And God was all she ever needed. And here we are, we're worrying and we're fretting, and we're thinking, what do you mean, give out of my poverty? If I give everything that I have, then I'll have nothing but God. And you sure would be in a pickle, wouldn't you? If you had nothing but God, that'd be a lot of suffering, wouldn't it be? Well, there's proof of the profession. They're real Christians here in Philippi because they could depend on God. And if loving your neighbor means this, that you have to give away everything that you have, that's okay. I don't need this stuff because I've got God. Now, thirdly then, what did their giving show? Well, it was also a demonstration of sacrifice. This was a demonstration of their willingness. Now, you see, most of us, when we talk about things like this, we're really not talking about giving out of our poverty. We're talking about giving out of our abundance. I mean, there's none of us that's down to the very last penny and the very last cracker that's in the pantry. We've got something. And we really haven't been told to do what this widow at Zarephath was told to do. So we're not giving out of poverty. We're actually giving out of our abundance. And there are some people who would like to judge your Christianity on the amount that you give. And so they look at Brother Jackson, and Brother Jackson just dropped a check in the offering plate for $500. And then here's Sister Sally over here, and she gave $5. And so we judge them that... Brother Jackson has given far, far more than Sister Sally has given. But did you know in God's eyes that's never true? Because God is not looking at how much you give. God looks at what you have left over. Now, you might pat yourself on the back and you'd say, well, the stats this year said that I gave $10,000 to the church. And here's another member over here that only gave $2,000. And you say, well, I, I've given so much more. Look how, look how good that I have been and what I've done. But you see, the real gauge of that is how much did you have left after you gave the 10000 How much did you have left after you gave the 2000 I mean, how much do you have left to spend on yourself? There's the real gauge, and that tells you whether your giving has been sacrificial. So when the Philippians gave out of their poverty more than they were able to give, and when that widow gave the last bit of meal that she had in the barrel, folks, that was sacrificial. That's what it means to really give sacrificially. So a sacrifice then is proof of the profession. And there's really nothing that can tell the story about whether you really get this or not than by the way that you're willing to give. Now, let's go on with this because I think in one sense we've talked about the negative side of giving and love, dependence, and sacrifice all have positive sides. And so I, I, I don't want to give it all in a negative connotation. So we're going to look at this from another angle. Number two is the increase of their investment. You know, there are many people that are looking for smart investments. And they'll go so far that they will risk something 
if they think that the return on the investment would be great enough. Now, there are two things that are wrong with that, actually, when it comes to investing with God. And the first one is that there's never a risk. You don't risk anything when you invest with God because God is always going to take care of you. You're never going to lose anything with God. And then secondly, if you're measuring your risk by what you'll get in a material return, then your giving is purely selfish. Now, here is where we find the great downfall of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Now, it's not only not the true gospel, but it's unchristian. Joel Osteen and, and Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and Oral Roberts and Joyce Meyer and all that bunch, they are not preaching or teaching a Christian gospel. They keep talking about sowing seeds, but their sowing has nothing at all to do with the way that Jesus says that we're to sow seeds. You see, whenever you give something and your purpose in giving is because you think that you're going to get personal gain out of it or there's going to be some kind of an enrichment to your life and material things, then you're, you're, you're giving for the wrong reasons. And if someone tells you that if you just give to God that you'll get ten times your investment and you do that because in your mind that's what it means to have a victorious Christian life, to be wealthy, to have all those kinds of things, well, if that's what you think, you've only undermined the gospel. Because the gospel has nothing to do with that. And the law of God has nothing to do with that. Because that's nothing but selfishness. But it doesn't mean that there is no return on investment. And neither does it mean that you shouldn't expect or desire a return on your investment. See, the Bible would never speak about rewards if it wasn't for a return that we're going to get. And when the Bible talks about the judgment seat of Christ, it would talk about rewards there, but rather the judgment seat would be merely a place to get your hand stamped so you can get into heaven. But the Bible teaches that there is going to be a reward. There is a return on investment. Now look at verse number 15. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, in the beginning of the gospel. Paul was the first one to bring the gospel to Macedonia. And we've referred to that as the first preaching of the gospel on the continent of Europe. And the Philippians were grateful to Paul because he cared enough that he would hazard the journey that it took to get there. And he cared enough and he was motivated enough by the love of Christ that he came to these people and they, he gave them the gospel. And they loved Paul for that. And they loved the gospel itself. They loved Christ, they loved Paul, and they loved the gospel. And because of what Paul had done for them, they wanted to invest in his work of giving the gospel to others. So there is a principle about investing in God's work. And it is first this, that you are to give as you are given. Paul didn't come to them with money. He didn't come to them preaching about what can be done with money. You know, I think it's passing strange that there's so many preachers that have built their ministries on this very thing. What they talk about is money. And they come to you with their ostentatious lifestyles. And they say, if you'll just give and keep on giving, then you can live like me. And you can have all the things that I have. And you can see my earlier reference to HWNP Hucksters, because that's what it's all about. But what Paul did was to teach them to give as they were given. So here comes this traveling preacher, and they would never have known about him, and they'd never known about the gospel of Christ. If there wasn't someone who was willing to make the sacrifice, to come where they were, to bring them the gospel of Christ, to preach to them so they would know about him and they could be saved. 
And we sometimes refer to that first preaching of the gospel as the Macedonian call. We read about it in Acts 16, where it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And so here is this Macedonian call. And help us has absolutely nothing at all to do with money. There's no monetary thought in this at all. Help us is a call for the gospel of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit sent Paul into Macedonia with the gospel. And when he had delivered the gospel and the people believed the gospel, then Paul was able to found a church there. But then after he was done with that, God called him elsewhere. Well, the Philippians couldn't go with him and... Paul didn't expect them to go. He didn't say, pack up your bags and let's hit the road and let's go give the gospel to other people. He didn't expect them to do that. If he had, then he never would have started a church there. But instead, he taught them to give something. And they were given the gospel, so how are they going to give back? They can't go with Paul, they can't travel with him, they can't give in that way. So how do they help with it? How do they help with the gospel? How do they give? Well, they do it monetarily. What they can do is to provide the funds to get the gospel to others. And the investment that they made in Paul's ministry was not for the purpose of getting a material gain. The investment was an investment in the kingdom of God. Paul said in Romans 4, 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So the kingdom of God is not material. Righteousness and peace and joy is not about your possessions. It's about people. People receive righteousness and peace and joy. And how will they receive it? Well, all three of those come from the gospel of Christ. And giving their money was a way that they could help Paul to reach people for Christ. And that's what it's all about. Now, of course, I'm not speaking here only about foreign missions. We, we need to give for that. and We should give for it. But every dollar that we spend right here helps us to keep the physical plant operating. I mean, the very thing that many people don't want to support because that seems to be so mundane, and yet that's what enables us to keep the gospel, a presence of the gospel, right here in Rohnert Park. And if we're talking about the school or talking about the other ministries that we do here, we must keep a presence of the gospel in Rohnert Park because if we don't have the people here, then we can't send the money out there. So we have, to, we have to include all of this. It's all important. And you are to give as you were given because if you were given the gospel, you ought to have a burden for other people and, and love your neighbor in this way that you want to give him the gospel too. So make it possible that the gospel stays here and also can go out there. Invest in the kingdom of God and the increase is not going to be what you get in your personal banking account. The increase... It's souls added to the income, into the uh, kingdom of God, and that is the increase of your investment. So the increase of the Philippian investment was by giving to God and increasing the kingdom of God. But that's not the only way that it increases, because I have something to tell you tonight, is that I can promise you that you will double your personal investment. Now, if I told you that I have an investment for you where you're going to get a 20% return on your money. Lots of you would be ready to write out the check tonight. And, you know, in fact, uh, if I told you you could get 12% on your money 
A lot of people would jump on that because that's an uncommon amount for, uh, for an investment. And whenever the government, Securities and Exchange Commission, hears that you're offering a 12% return on money, the first thing to do is come check you out because that's just a little bit too high. It doesn't happen that way. But I want to tell you something. You do have a promise from the Bible that you can double your investment. Now, here, here, here's the point I'm trying to make. You are going to get two for the price of one. You'll get two for the price of one, and that is a 100% increase. Now, calm down a little bit, because I'm not going Osteen on you right here. You know, some people, they hear that, they'll move already to the front of the seat, and they're ready to write the check. You have to get your mind off dollar bills here. Did you ever hear this scripture? In Acts 20, verse 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, let me show you something about that scripture before I make the point. This is one of those scriptures that Paul received by inspiration. There is no place in the Gospels where Jesus made this statement. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And yet, if you have a a red-letter edition of the Bible, almost always this is written with red letters because Jesus did, in fact, say this. The only thing is, he said it directly to Paul. It was direct inspiration. And so when he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, he's talking about remembering the general principles that Jesus taught. And this statement, it's more blessed to give than receive, was made directly to the Apostle Paul. Now, I threw that in because it goes along with the introduction to the message. So where's that double return that I'm talking about? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, that of course, means that there's a blessing that comes with giving. So there we have the initial investment. You get a blessing from the fact that you gave. Now look at verse 17 of the text. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So now there's your 100% return. You gave a... You gave, and so you got a blessing for giving, but you also receive another blessing, and that's fruit that abounds to your account. So there you have two blessings for the price of one. Now, I hope that's good enough for you, and it doesn't disappoint you, because if it does, then you really haven't got what I'm talking about tonight. You need to go back and look at point number one, proof of profession. So here we have something that's way better than giving $50 in order to get $100 back. And you know why that is? It's because what we're talking about here is not anything that's monetary. It's the fruit of the Spirit that God gives. And that's love and joy and peace, etc. And it's also the fruit of the gospel. And the fruit of the gospel is souls that are one for the kingdom of God. And those souls are going to be with you all throughout eternity. Now that brings me to point number three, which is the direction of the deposit. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Where is your account? If I go outside the building tonight and I find somebody on the street and I say, you know something, I'd like to make a deposit to your account. Where's your account? Oh, they'd get excited about that and say, well, my account's at Chase, and here's the number. You can go make the deposit, or, or at Bank of the West, or, or Wells Fargo. Here's the number. Well, is that where your account is? Is that what Paul means when he says this is going to abound to your account? No, Paul's not Osteen, and so the account that he's talking about is the account that you have in heaven. There's joy in this life and an everlasting reward that's received in heaven. That's a future return. So here's a principle 
of giving that's always true uh, when it concerns God, and that is that what you give now is gained later. It's given now, but you gain later, and that's a principle of sowing and reaping. And we haven't talked too much about that tonight, but that's really a principle of sowing and reaping. You have to sow in order to reap, and when you sow, what you're going to reap will come later. Now, the harvest will always come, but the harvest comes later. And the wonderful thing about sowing with God is that there's always a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You will get a harvest, and you can count on that. It's going to happen. Now, the direct deposit is always upward. You know, our giving seems to be lateral. I mean, you see somebody like you, and you give them money, or you help them out, or you give to your church, and the giving seems to be lateral. But our giving actually always goes upward. Now, let me explain that statement with the last point tonight. What was given to the apostle went straight to the Almighty. They gave to Paul's work for his support, but what they gave immediately passed through Paul's hands, and then it went upward to God. And so they gave laterally, but what they gave went straight up to God. Now, where do we see that? Look at verse 18. But I have all and abound... I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So Paul received it, and he abounded from it, but what they gave was actually given to God. And Jesus illustrated that principle in Matthew chapter 25. He says, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And so when you give, what you give is laterally to a person who's just like you, but it ends up in the hands of the Almighty. Now Paul says... Your gifts were an odor. They're a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And what he meant was that when you gave, this giving was not a sacrifice for me. It's a sacrifice that went right up to God. Now, in the Old Testament, they had an altar of incense that was in the tabernacle. And the priest would come and he would burn the incense on that altar. And the incense would make a pleasing aroma that filled all of the tabernacle. And you know what it symbolized? It symbolized the sweetness of obedience that pleases God. Christ gave his life, and the Bible says that that was a sweet smell to the Father. So the burning of incense was an act of thankfulness and an act of worship. And if you can ever get it into your heart and understand this, and I'll make the point when we get into this in our Sunday morning sermon, is that giving is an act of worship. And if that is a way that you worship God, then who would not want to do it? What Christian does not want to worship God? And that's what giving is. Giving says, God, I'm thankful that you gave me the gospel. I'm thankful that you saved my soul. I'm thankful for Christ. And I want to show you that I'm thankful by worshiping and giving to others. And so if you bail out on a service that encourages you to give, then you've missed your opportunity to worship You missed your opportunity to be thankful. You missed an opportunity to make a heavenly deposit. I don't want to miss that, and I hope you don't either. So can people tell that you've really got this? Well, they'll be able to tell, and they'll know that you've got it 
when they see how much that you're willing to give it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is a real principle that's behind giving. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We do thank you so much that you've given us the ability to give. And you reward us for our giving. We thank you for that. And Lord, it is an act of worship. And so we want to be everything that you want us to be and worship you in a way that's pleasing and acceptable and is truly that sweet savor, that sweet smell in your nostrils. Lord, I just pray that you would lay it upon our hearts to give as we should, that we would want to give to see the gospel go out. We want to see to see our, give to see our church prosper, to see um, the work that we can do here for you. And Lord, it takes money, and we're aware of that. And we know that you're aware of it too. And that's why you've told us that we need to give. And you'll always be sure to take care of us if we do. So we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you'd bless in this time that we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.